Hello and welcome to the Arms Control Poser Podcast. My name is William Albert, Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Berlin. I will be your host as we explore the world of arms control. On each podcast, I will interview the great and the good of the arms control community about a current event related to a treaty or agreement, past, present, or only proposed. Then together, we will go, hopefully, deep enough on the history and functioning of the agreement to help you make sense of it all. And, well, that's the idea anyway. This podcast is funded by the European Union Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium. Now let's get underway. Welcome to the Arms Control Poser podcast. My guest today, Manuel Herrera. He is a researcher at the Italian International Affairs Institute based in Rome. And today he's going to talk to us about the Iran deal, the joint comprehensive program of action and where we are with Iran on its nuclear program, where we are with the agreement to limit that program, what the prospects for the future are going to be and how do we just get out of this current mess that we're in? Manuel, thank you very much for being here today. Well, first of all, thanks to you for inviting me to attend the podcast. Uh, and also thanks to the Europe, the UN Non-Proliferation Assignment Consortium for making this possible. Oh, of course, of course. So the Iranian nuclear deal, or I mean, I think it's quite important now to, as things stand right now, to make a distinction between what are the developments uh, taking place regarding Iran's nuclear program and what are the developments taking place regarding the GCPOA, the proper deal? Uh, because I think that we reached a situation with Iran in which uh, we need to detach both realities, both aspects. And I'm going to try to make this clear right now from the beginning. Um, the way Iran has, be, has been behaving vis-a-vis its nuclear program, at least since 2019, or, well, someone can even say 2018 as a result of the withdrawal from the, by the U.S. Of the, on the agreement, uh, contravenes and uh, gets uh, it's out of the scope of the, of the constraints that the agreement established on Iran. Uh, if you see most of the developments, recent developments, I'm, when I'm saying, saying recent developments, I'm, I mean, two, since 2021 till now, or uh, you see that Iran basically has been uh, doing three things that are quite worrisome in terms of um, both international and regional security. The first one, of course, has been the, not only the, more, the modernization of its enrichment capacity with inclusion and incorporation of IR6 centrifuges into its uh, set of um, enrichment, uh, enrichment capacity, uh, but this has been done particularly in a very sensitive site. Uh, this is something that I always defend as one of the main concerns regarding Iran, which is the site of Fordo. As you know, Iran actually has two different enrichment plants, one in Fordo, one in Natanz. Uh, and Fordo has always been quite a, uh, quite a concern, not only now, but even when the GCPOA was being negotiated and when the different resolutions were being negotiated regarding how to deal with the Iranian deal. I mean, in 2006, 2005, etc., etc., Fordo has always been a major concern because of its location and it, because of its size. We all knew from the beginning that Fordo was a site that aim to develop the aim to enrich uranium for weapons purposes because of its location because of its site because of its technical capacity and the thing that uh, the iranians have been expanding that site and also expanding the stockpile 
of enriched uranium in that site should be a concern for us because um, actually we don't have a lot of transparency on what's going on uh, there. Uh, I'm going to come to this point later. But yeah, uh, Fordo is more uh, pro a proliferation sensitive site than Nathan's. And the expansion of the enrichment capacity and the stockpiles of uranium enrichment there, it's quite a concern. Then, going now with uh, uranium enrichment, uh, one of the other key concerns with Iran is the fact that not only they have breached the limits that GCPOA established regarding uranium enrichment. As you know, GCPOA just allowed for an enrichment of 6.35% on, uh, on uranium, uh, a little bit above the, the natural standard, because as, as we know, the IAEA standard for enrichment is 5%. The deal allowed for bigger enrichment percentage, but I mean, it was minimal. But now Iran is enriching, is enriching to 60% and 20% and has a stockpiles of both uranium enrichment uh, enriched uranium of 60% and 20%. I mean, um, if I'm not wrong, and these are dates, data from, the, from February this year, um, they have 87 kilograms of 60% enriched uranium and uh, 435 kilograms of 20% enriched uranium right now. So uh, one, so the other concern is the expansion of these stockpiles uh, for two reasons. Um, because of the break, uh, the, the most important one I think is the break, the breakout um, time or the breakout period. You know, the period that takes in order to obtain a bomb, basically. And although Iran has not uh, or is not in the process of actually uh, researching for weaponization stand for weaponization of uh, of um, of this uranium, I mean, basically they are not conducting research in terms of engineering to develop a proper nuclear warhead, let's say so. But uh, actually, you have enough uranium to, in case you want to do that, obtain three to three to six uh, bombs in a very short period of time. And that's also the concern regarding this move that the Iranians have, have uh, done. Yes. Sorry, William. No, that's great. No, you've, uh, but you've thrown, a, you've thrown a lot of concepts in there, and I just I just want to go over a couple of them just to make absolutely clear. Mm -hmm. Sure. For instance, so enrichment of uranium. Civilian reactors shouldn't need anything over 5%. In mm -hmm. fact, a lot operate under 5%. Exactly. And, yeah, exactly. Yes. And to go to 20%, I mean, that's that's what we consider highly enriched uranium. But the uh, so so now they're they're enriching substantial quantities of sixty percent, and as you pointed out, the May report says that they have what is it one hundred fourteen point one kilograms of sixty percent, which if you think about it is at least two if not three well, warheads worth, correct? Yes. Well, it, actually, that's even be, uh, above what I what what I got from the, the data from IAA. So, yeah, I mean, we could even talk about ha uh, even higher quantities right, for sure. Right. right. Uh, just to go back to the concept of twenty percent, because yes, twenty percent is highly enriched uranium. But uh, just for people to be clear and to understand this, uh, so, some research reactors use twenty percent uranium oh. for research purposes. This 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 happens and this is uh, but this it's done under strict uh, IAA uh, International Atomic Energy Agency safeguards, right, which right. is not the case. So in, in so theory, the, right, and this is in theory you could have a civilian use for twenty percent, but Iran in that case would have even higher obligations in terms of safeguarding, yes. which they've refused to do. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this already started in 2021 when they just uh, stopped implementing the additional protocol, for instance. Right. And all the, and also 
and this is the third point I wanted to raise as a concern, is the yeah. fact that uh, Iran, at least since um, yes, 2021, even last year, last year was quite a dramatic turn when they decided to shut down all the cameras in most of their facilities. I think that uh, one of the main concerns for, for the international community is the fact that transparency and the implementation of the transparency arrangements inside GCPOA has just decreased dramatically on Iran. And this is something that uh, officials and inspectors in the International Atomic Energy Agency complain a lot, like, we cannot do a proper follow-up of what the Iranians have been doing for almost two years. We don't know to which extent they are deviating from the GCPOA uh, for the last two years. And I think that this, that's a concern because one of the key elements that keeps uh, GCPOA, well, not only GCPOA, but any non-proliferation uh, arrangement valid is the fact that we have transparency transparent and, phys- and objective ways to actually measure what are the developments of a particular nuclear program by a particular country. If those transparency measures are not in place, we are in the shadows. And for instance, even uh, I put, I'm going to put myself in the mindset of the US and in the mindset of the Israelis. Um, vis-a-vis, for instance, Fordow, as I told you, Fordow is quite a sensitive site because of its location and because of its size and technical capacity. If I myself, Israel or the US, I'm not able to fully understand what are the developments that are taking there. I can miscalculate and I can think, well, um, that's going to be a break. And we are closer to the breakout time, you know, to play a bomb. We need to put an end to this. Maybe, maybe there is not going on anything there. We don't know. So, I mean, if I put myself in a non proliferation point of view in Washington, I say, like, a military strike might be feasible against Fordo, despite because I actually don't have. The proper knowledge of what's going on there. So, uh, I mean, that's why we always, non-proliferation experts, we always tend to say, like, one of the key aspects of non-proliferation is transparency. Without transparency and without proper auditing of activities, uh, you cannot work in this field. It's uh, it's impossible. I mean, you cannot trust anyone. And one thing that GCPOA did wonderfully, I think, was actually to establish proper transparency and control mechanisms. Maybe the Iranians, of course, will tell you maybe too much, but I think that based on, pre- on past behaviors by Iran, they were more than reasonable, I think. Right. And, and there's something else. So, so there's two things. First of all, now, Fordo, you say it's it's concerning. Is it concerning because it's because of its, you say it's location, it's just south of mm-hmm. Tehran, but what about it is particularly concerning? Is it is it because it would be easy to hide things there? Is it, is it in a tunnel network? What, what is it that is particularly concerning about Fordo versus other uh, yes. uranium enrichment facilities? For, for instance, the first thing is like in contrast with Natanz, which is underground. Right. Fordo is underground. It's an underground facility. We actually have, it has a tunnel structure, as you mentioned. Second, of course, uh, the location. Fordo, um, so the, the enrichment plan of Fordo is uh, actually built up in a... Um, so on the mount, basically, it's a very, uh, in terms of orography, it's a very difficult place to access. It's basically mostly mountains. To, right. So it's very well protected, geographically speaking. Right. So a deeply and second, buried facility uh, third, that's also protected by the mountain range. So it seems specifically yes. designed to avoid exactly. detection and to avoid any kind of exactly. airstrikes or anything like that, which suggests exactly. that they anticipated that, that it would be of military concern to other countries. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, actually, that's one of the main reasons uh, why Fordo has always been assumed to be 
a um, enrichment plan with uh, military purposes always right. and oh, and also uh, the fact is that uh, Fordo has like currently I mean at le- this is at least the announcement that the Iranians uh, did last year now has like the most advanced centrifuge cascade in all Iran so right. you also may understand that I want to ask you, right, right, you had mentioned the IR6s if you could just tell me a little bit about the enrichment centrifuges and you know what is this IR1, IR2, IR3, IR6? What does that mean, and why is it of particular concern? Um, as you know, that that IR number seems to be creeping up. <laughs> does that mean that they're more capable? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, basically, the centrifuge, the basically the basic uh, as, the basic aspect is not so much about the I mean the num the number per se, but it's mostly about the um, the efficiency in which and the velocity in which it can actually enrich uh, ir ones like the most classical ones they took like quite a long time to do that and now ir6 is able to do that in even a slow in a faster in a faster pace there are, we are even talking about already about ir8 for instance centrifuges so uh basically is the thing about the centrifuge is that they go into like a centrifuge that goes uh, to supersonic uh, speed in order to separate the isotope of uh, uranium and obtain the uranium 235 and reach to uh, to higher quantities. In this case, uh, they can reach to 20, 60, and even 90%, basically. And actually, one of the things that was quite interesting with the R6 centrifuges in the case of uh, Iran and Fordo uh, was the fact that. Um, I think it was in February, March this year. I don't remember right now the exact date, but I mean, particles were found to be even enriched to 84%, so very near to 90%, which is the grade that you need for a nuclear weapon, for a nuclear weapons grade uranium. So basically, you are you are uh, telling this tells us that the Iranians at least are experimenting to this kind of uranium enriched level, and IR6 centrifuges are able to reach that in a faster way. Basically, that's the main uh, that's the main concern. But the the way centrifuges work, I mean, the the traditional engineering of the centrifuge, I mean, goes back till the uh, till the 1940s even. So it's a very class it's a very classical process. Let's say this is, a, and I think that this is a process that it's already has already been mastered by almost anyone. The thing that actually countries look for is to obtain centrifuges that are able to uh, enrich at faster paces, um, or I mean, there were some there were some experiments in the 2010s actually with laser, but I, th- I, mean, I think that in terms of commer- in terms of commercial terms, basically, uh, centrifuges are still the most feasible economically speaking. If you are interested in actually obtaining uranium enriched for nuclear uh, for nuclear power reactors, right? And so the Iranians have mastered the production of increasingly capable centrifuges. Yes. The IR one I think could do like what 0.8 of a separated work unit per year, and the yes. IR six is up to more than six. So so an increase of about eight times in efficiency. I don't even know what the IR8 can do. That's that's pretty scary. But basically all of this in order to enrich uranium to much higher levels of enrichment much, much faster. And so the more centrifuges they have at the higher levels, the more efficient they are, the more they can get to 60% or 90% or 99% if that's their aim. So is that right? Yes, basically that's the that's the idea. But I mean, but we always then try to. I mean, we need always to try to understand why they are doing this. I mean, if you are not actually developing a weaponization research program, so basically you are not trying to uh, 
master's engineering in order to obtain a nuclear warhead, then you mustn't try to explain your try, try to understand okay why are they doing this. So if it's not to develop a nuclear warhead, maybe this is, has other political purposes, which is basically why we always speak about Iran because most of the enrichment um, activity that has taken place in Iran, at least since uh, 2021, was basically oriented in order to exercise pressure on the U.S. and the international com uh, community in order to force the U.S. government, in this case the Biden administration, to go back to the JCPOA. We don't see any other reason why the Iranians have been enriching, enriching to till this extent. Maybe also to, I mean, maybe also to the level, uh, to an idea or to obtain, let's say, the concession from the Americans of actually accepting the enrichment of 60% uranium. Because, I mean, this is not uh, something that should not be taken into consideration because as far as we uh, understand the position of the Biden administration regarding Iran, at, at least recently, recently, has been that tacitly they accept that 60% enriched uranium is fine in Iran. I mean, there has not been any position from the Biden administration that actually tries to pursue or to condition the, uh, try to convince the Iranians basically to eliminate those stockpiles. So for me, but in any case, this is, I think this is another issue. Basically, I think that the Iranians have been doing this just to put pressure. Not, uh, I mean, I don't see any weapons research, uh, develop, weaponization research activity right now. All right, that's a good place to take a break. We'll be back in just a minute with Manuel Herrera. You're listening to William Albrecht on the Arms Control Poser podcast. Wasn't the outstanding problems between Iran and the International Atomic Energy Agency is that they have some past military activities. So it appears that up to a certain point in history, they appear to have been doing work without weapons usable material, but with everything else, with the conventional explosives that you'd need to make a bomb, with the triggers, with all that stuff. So isn't that still an open concern that they might have done all that work that they need? Put that on the shelf. <laughs> developing the actual material. So in theory, they could put one and two together, or, or is that not a concern? I mean, that's a, I mean, that was a concern, and particularly, I mean, the weaponization research program of uh, Iran officially, let's say, stopped in 2003, basically. Right. That was one of the, one of the first initiatives that the Iranian uh, government took in order to avoid a major confrontation with the, with the United States at the time, uh, because we were in the context of Iraq, Afghanistan, etc., etc. But uh, in any case, it can be a concern, but wouldn't be something quite immediate. I mean, it's a concern if they decide to go through that way, but I mean, I was just checking, uh, for instance, preparing um, a, nuclear war a nuclear warhead in order to be incorporated into missiles, because yeah. we know that the Iranians have a quite wonderful missile right, yeah. uh, capability let's say <laughs> i mean uh, very highly capable missiles yeah still they will they will need they will need between one year and two years to do that uh, we can actually prevent in that time any weaponization program from either from the i mean the us would be in conditions to prevent that uh so uh still they they will still need a lot of time right. to do that so it's a concern, yes, but I don't see them doing that in the immediate future. Right. But just right looking now. at scale, for instance, the original JCPOA limitation was that they would have, I think it was 202.8 kilograms of uh, enriched material. And now they have yes. 2,400 kilograms, 2%, 1,300 yes. of 5%. 
no, well, 470 yeah, 60, or 20%, 114 of 60%. And as you pointed out, they appear to have um, experimented at much higher levels um, of enrichment. So it, so it appears that if they chose to break out, I mean, certainly when you're enriching, the difference between the amount of work from zero to 20% is massive. The amount of work you need to go from 20% enriched to 90% enriched is tiny in comparison. Mm -hmm. so, so they're at least poised. It, it almost appears like they're, sure. they're in this trap where... Uh, their best way to keep attention, to keep the United States engaged is to enrich and the best way for the U.S. to manage that is to escalate. So so what are the hopes here? What, what, what are the prospects for any kind of agreement, any sort of stability or transparency? Or do you think we're just in this, this doom loop where we keep threatening, Iran keeps enriching, and then they just stumble into weaponization? I mean, I mean, actually, that uh, I mean, it looks quite simple, but actually, the scenario, the scenario is quite accurate. I think that the strategy of the Iranians has been, as I explained before, just try to enrich, put pressure, and see if the other ones engage. And if they don't engage, that's just going to enrich and enrich and enrich. Basically, that's procedure. But that, personally, I think that that's not going to lead anywhere because either you, either you are really showing that you are starting a weaponization program, or no one is going to take you at the end fully, fully serious this case although we can discuss i mean this is debatable i agree i agree with you that this can be debatable prospects um i'm gonna start with gcpoi uh gcpoi is not gonna i mean uh it's gonna pass away i think gcpoi the sunset closes are just gonna start go and the deal will disappear with time that's it i mean i don't see any major prospect or any suitable prospect right now to a return of the us to the agreement but not so much not so much about the US. I mean the US, okay, you can blame the Trump administration of going out, et cetera, et cetera. That's it's totally legit because I think that that was uh, the problem, the key problem from the beginning after the GCPOA was approved. But since the moment the Iranians have this amount of stockpiles of enriched uranium and they have implemented incorporated, sorry, IR six uh, centrifuges in the in their centrifuge cascade. So basically, a model was not conceived when the GCPOA was uh, was signed was uh, adopted. Uh, they are in a they are in a point where they can actually not go back to the agreement. I mean, basically, they will have to eliminate like how much uh, kilograms of enriched uranium. I mean, it would be really I don't know if they will actually bear the cost in order to do that to go back to the agreement. So. It's one of that's the main reason why I think implementing again GCPOA is not feasible. Basically, because the Iranians they just went way too far away from the from the agreement, from the limits that the agreement established, both in terms of stockpiles and technological development. So that's the first issue. But what can happen? And I think that our um, our time frame should be the uh, year 2024 and the elections, both in the US. And uh, in Iran, because people forget that we have also elections in Iran. In the, I mean, not for the president, but just uh, legislative elections, and that's quite important, I think, as well, because we'll um, because of how the power will distribute inter inter internally inside the Iranian political system, and also if see if the conservatives still keep the pace after the uh, after the current administration. But going back to the U.S. Um, well, you, uh, well, there have been a lot of talks since August this year, July, August this year, that some kind of ar arrangement has been achieved with the Iranians in terms of common understanding between uh, the West, EU, US, and Tehran, basically through the conversations in Oman and so on. Um, 
part of this arrangement would be that both sides agree, both the US and Iran agree that we are, that the two of them need to de-escalate tensions to some extent, uh, in some sort of way, if any. And so uh, basically, the idea is that um, Iran will refrain itself from further enrichment. I mean, this is what the, the so-called arrangement is. I mean, I, I listen. I heard too many things about this kind of arrangement because there are people who, in there are officials in Tehran who recognize that this arrangement has been achieved. There are people in Washington who say that this arrangement does not exist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We actually don't know very well what's going on, but at least we are already starting to see some change in the behavior of the actors. From one side, the Iranians have recognized that they are not enrich, enriching uranium at the same pace and that they are actually diluting part of that enriched uranium to, of 60% enriched uranium. And also that regionally, they are not fostering either Iran or its proxies to attack military personnel or military uh, bases in the Middle East, if any. Uh, at the same time, the US has agreed to some extent, very limited, in a very limited way, to uh, is uh, sanction or is tensions at least inside uh, not so much economic sanctions, sorry, but at least with the tensions inside the International Atomic Energy Agency and the UN Security Council. This is part of this kind of uh, arrangement, let's say. That's the that's the most that's the name because it's a political agreement. It's not a legally binding agreement of of, of any sort. And so this this kind of uh, arrangement has only been achieved. Till 2024. Why? Because um, elections are coming. In the, we are going to have elections in the U.S. The Biden administration doesn't want to have any major problems right now in the Middle East, particularly because they already have enough problems with uh, with Ukraine and also with the tensions right. in Taiwan. So I don't think that they want a third from there, and they want things to be to stay calm. And also, the Iranians have legislative elections, and I think that if they broke some kind of informal political deal with um with the Biden administration, the conservatives think that think that they might win also the major representation inside the, the okay. parliament. That's that's I think that this is the yeah, I think that this is a trade off basically that we have right, right so, now. So we've got common interest of both sides to at least temporarily ratchet down the exactly. tensions depending on where the elections go. So if the conservatives exactly, are yes. dealt a big blow in Iran in the uh, in the in the uh, parliamentary uh, elections that might damage their interests or our positions, etc. And then for the U.S., depending on who wins, obviously that's going to have a major effect on the overall direction. Exactly. Can you tell me what do you think the role is? So, so there, there are three other groups here that I want to talk about, and then two other actors. So what's the role, what do you think the role is for the IAEA itself? I mean, I think Raphael Grossi as DG has done some amazing work in intervening at just the right times to open the door for diplomacy. Do you think there's a role for the E3 or the European Union here? And the third, of course, is the regional, the states in the region. You know, they were very deliberately left out of the JCPOA. And yet a lot of the diplomacy that's occurring in the region appears to be both driven by what Iran's doing and also um, driven by their interests in terms of trying to create security. And then, of course, you know, what about Russia and China as either helpers or spoilers in this whole thing? If you, if you could talk a little bit about these, uh, these other actors. So actually, I think I'm going to start by the, the, the last one, by the regional context, because I think it's like the, the key here. Uh, 
you said, I mean, when UCPA was adopted, I mean, if you if you saw at the time the reactions by the Saudis and the Israelis was like, uh, this is like the worst deal ever. This is going to be hell, fire and fury. It's going to go through the whole region, uh, chaos, destruction, and Magadan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, it was like really. I mean, I remember Netanyahu going there in the United Nations and showing this um, this presentation with the Iranians and the bombs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I mean, it was like a real headache. But it's quite interesting that right now what we are seeing is a very mild reaction by regional powers, by regional countries, uh, actors. Particularly, I'm going to focus on the UAE, Saudis, <laughs> and the Israelis, who I think that they are like the three key actors in this case. Uh, in the case of the Israelis, I think that they are not being so aggressive towards this kind of new arrangement or understanding of of, of Iran, at least by from the from the American side. Basically, first because I think that the Israel is not in the same position as it was in 2015 in order to influence politics in Washington. The situation has changed quite a lot there. And second, because actually sanctions are not being eased, economic, economic sanctions are not being eased on the on Iran. So actually, those controls are still in place. So the Israelis are not so worried that the Iranians could refinance uh, or can obtain financial benefits from the U.S. in order to rearm themselves and further modernize modern, uh, modernize their weapon system. So actually, the, the the Israelis they are in this kind of position, like okay, there is this arrangement, but no major concessions have been achieved. Uh, by from the Iranian side, so it's fine. The Saudis and the uh, and the UAE in this case, or I would say, I mean, we can talk in a more broader sense with Arab about the Arab countries. Is that uh, I think that the Arab countries in general, first of all, there is a normalization process going on since mm. some years ago between Iran and the Arab the Arab uh, countries, particularly the Saudis in this case. And I think that the Arabs, to some extent, they still want this normalization process to go on, basically because they already acknowledge that, that Iran is a Iran. It's a regional. It's a key regional actor. We will not get rid of Iran. Iran is going to be there, or at least the Iranian regime, as we know it, will remain there. So we need to reach some kind of understanding with them, of some sort. Uh, but at the same time, the Arabs give you some contradictory positions because yes we want to understand Iran we acknowledge the presence of Iran as a regional actor that needs to be taken into consideration but at the same time uh if they go for i mean if they go for a bomb i'm going to take i'm going to also go for the bomb full stop this right. is what the saudis tell you and also yeah. the fact that the saudis i mean the saudis have been trying to develop their nuclear program through different means in order to mimic the iranians to some extent and they are, have been i mean they fa- they fail miserably in every single in every single way. I mean, they have not been able to uh, obtain major concessions in terms of fuel provision, technology provision, etc., etc. Even now that we are re- talking about, uh, again, sorry, uh, about a one to three agreement between the US and the Saudis, I mean, uh, the one to three agreement has been negotiated for years and no one has been able to put it in the table because the Saudis tell you if the Iranians enrich, I also want to enrich. I want to have the full control of the nuclear cycle on the table and that means enrichment capacity and facilities and that's something that if you sign a one to three agreement like the united arab emirates did i mean this is not i mean this is not allowed this is not tolerable so and here comes the other international actors let's gonna bring the chinese let's gonna bring the russians because i mean this 
these uh, two countries are actually expanding. I mean, these two countries control like 60% of the market of international uh, nuclear energy, basically. I mean, if you see the the role that the Russians have been uh, had had are are having right now in the region, you know, to um, promote and help to develop nuclear energy in the region is massive. Uh, you have Turkey, you have now Egypt. They are talking with Morocco as well. So, I mean, and the Saudis can be also another client. Let's say, I mean, it's a potential client as any other clients. And we know that the Chinese and the Russians are more. Um, I mean, when you send an agreement with Rosatom or with uh, Chinese National Nuclear Corporation, the type of control that the Chinese and the Russians put on you is not the same that the Americans. That's it. We know that. I mean, if you see the one, two, three agreement with the United Arab Emirates, it's a very close, very straight, uh, and very specific, very detailed agreement in what the, the Emiratis can do and cannot do. Right. This with the Russians. Right. So um, if, you sign, if you sign a deal with Russia and China, you are basically not going to have the safeguards requirements that a European or US or Japanese or South Korean consortium would require. Yes, basically that's uh, the main argument I wanted to to put forward, yes, basically. Uh, Although, I mean, that depends also because, for instance, with the agreement that Rosatom signed with uh, Turkey, uh, they have an agreement for resending spent fuel to Russia, in this case. So, I mean, there are some exceptions. and that's something that Russia holds out as a, as a good deal, and I understand that, but it's also, I think, I mean, I think you'd have to also look at that in terms of how Russia wants to create dependencies on these countries. So it wants to make sure that it controls every aspect. Yeah, no, I, I, think, that's, I think that's really important. You know, I've heard people complain about the US even talking to Saudi Arabia about enrichment. But I mean, I also think it's pretty clear that if the US doesn't talk to the Saudi Arabia, yeah, that Russia and China will step in, and surely that would not be as good for non-proliferation. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, that's 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 a real conundrum. Is there a role for the EU exactly. there? Well, I mean, uh, I always, I mean, I, I started in this profession studying EU, EU foreign policy and EU non-proliferation policy. I think that the EU used to have a role in the past, uh, particularly regarding the Iranian agenda. Like, let's say the Iranian agenda was like the main foreign policy agenda of the European Union. But if we go now that GCPOA is not, I mean, I don't think GCPOA, as I told you before, I don't think GCPOA is going to be resurrected in any form. And based on the fact that the diplomacy with Iran is basically taking place in a covert way and bilaterally between the US and Iran through Oman, um, I don't see the E3 now having a major role beyond supporting the US position diplomatically. But and even if you you want to talk from a point of view of um, sorry fostering nuclear energy in the region, I don't see which European companies could uh, actually compete against uh, the U.S. or the Chinese or the Russians in this case. I, I don't I don't see that happening. So, so no, I think that the the role of the EU and the EU three in in the EU three in this case it's rather limited. And it will be basically to follow up what the Americans and the American position is regarding Iran. Um, the Iran and other regional, other regional uh, agendas, of course. The main thing that could actually change the E3 or the EU position regarding Iran, Middle East, etc., etc., it's if there is a major shift or change in the White House. And I'm right. thinking about, for instance, if uh, Trump comes back, 
in Brussels they will think, okay, we will have to develop uh, develop a policy of our own regarding this agenda, this agenda, this agenda, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, that's my own. For me, that would be the only situation I would say I would say the E3 and the EU would actually try to develop an agenda of its own. Right now, it's just a follow-up of the Americans, basically. Yeah, I mean, I would think, I would hope that the EU uh, E3 grouping would be encouraging, especially of diplomacy in the region. I think there's a huge role there to continue dialogue among the Gulf states, mm-hmm. you know, supporting that kind of uh, cooperation that has really, I think, shifted some of the calculation in Tehran. Mm-hmm. As well as you know, um, rapprochement with Israel. I mean, you know, these are all things that I think diplomacy can play a really strong role, and that you and the E three could take on. And as you pointed out before, sanctions. I mean, sanctions. He, mm-hmm. And I want to mention sanctions because the other thing that I'm really concerned about in terms of future development is further military cooperation between Iran and Russia, as we've seen Iranian drones being used against. Civilians in Ukraine, that's really sent some shockwaves through mm-hmm. Europe. And with the sunset of the UN Security Council Resolution 2231 on Iran, and particularly the question over, over what the status of missile controls will be regarding Iran, will later in October, later this month, will we see lifting of those restrictions and, or you know, the sunset of those restrictions and therefore greater cooperation between Iran and Russia on missiles? Because I think if we saw Iranian technology in missiles being delivered in Ukraine by Russia, that would also stand the chance of further upsetting any potential rapprochement uh, with Iran could upset any sort of diplomacy on a deal going forward. Do, do you see that as a risk? Yes. And actually, well, that's one of the reasons why actually sanctions cannot be eased on, on Iran. I mean, uh, there have been discussions between the US and the E3 or the EU with the Iranians in order to avoid this kind of transfers to Russia. In exchange right. of easing sanctions, but I mean, this has not gone—I mean, very far away. <laughs> I would say that there has not been a, a you know, breakthrough, and I think it's um, it's quite a challenge because it's not only drones, but it's also missiles. I mean, <laughs> the missiles can also be sent to Russia, of course. And of course. also, uh, the thing—and the thing is, like you know, the main problem I always found here is like basically, um, the controls of uh, missile technology over Iran have always been very flashy. I mean, uh, Iran has always done whatever the hell wanted you know, to develop its missile and drone capability without major problems and, and constraints. So, mm-hmm. um, and so the so the, basically this is an issue. That's why sanctions cannot be eased on Iran because of its cooperation with Russia in the war in Ukraine. And that's also, I mean, that's also one of the reasons why I think that going back to your case of the EU diplomacy, I mean. Your, dipl- your diplomacy in the region in the Middle East now it's really const- it's really constrained in the sense that we have a major role or shift to or yeah, role or task to do uh, vis-a-vis the conflict in Ukraine and we are quite deeply focused there so basically we don't have enough time or manpower to actually devote to other regional issues but also if you see the way uh, some of the diplomatic uh, dynamics have taken place recently in the Middle East I'm sorry but I mean most of the most of the key agreements have been negotiated by man, of course, as a regional uh, as a regional power, as a regional diplomatic power. But you know, the U.S. and the Chinese, basically, the the EU has not done anything because uh, doesn't have right now the capability to do anything in terms of uh, agendas or concerns in the Middle East. Uh, but yeah, going back to sanctions, I think sanctions cannot be or 
sanctions will not be eased by will not be lifted by um, the US and the EU, particularly as Russia Iranian technological and defense cooperation still uh, works. I think that uh, I mean this should not happen because I think that this should be taken into consideration as two different agendas. One thing should be the Iranian uh, nuclear program agenda. One thing should be the things that are going on in Ukraine. But it's right. It's true. It's right that most of the reason one most of the approaches that we are having towards the Iranians in terms of sanctions now are really being conditioned by the war in Ukraine and by the defense and technology cooperation with the Russians. And until that thing just disappears, right. uh, sanctions will... And then the other thing I think to look out for in the future would be the reaction to the uh, elections in Iran. If there is mm -hmm. widespread discontent, and as we saw with the horrific in response to the protests against the treatment of women in Iran, you know, if you mm -hmm. see a repeat of that, it's going to make things even more complicated for any kind of engagement with Iran going in the future. Yes, no, for sure. I mean, but uh, uh, I mean that's actually quite interesting because I mean Iran has suffered for like, since last decade, I would say, several massive protests. Uh, some sometimes most some of them out of control, but uh, the way the way the West has responded to those protests, particularly the last one, which was like the one. Uh, I would say, like, had the, the the major connotation because it was not only among the younger population, but also about the uh, among the female population. So it had a very important Western-oriented mm -hmm. connotation. But the West, beyond issuing communica uh, official communiques or and so on, basically, I mean, they didn't actually did anything, you know, to have those uh, those people in Iran who were protesting against the regime. So again, as I, as I told you, basically, it's just. Uh, Showing, posing, uh, showing up specific position regarding something, but no major tangible action. Um, that also, I mean, regarding the elections, the legitimacy of elections. If we see massive protests, I don't, I don't think that even the West will react in any different way. They will say, okay, we, we disagree with the, with the point of view of the government in Iran. People should be free to protest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I mean, no major breakthrough will go on. I think that major breakthrough in the elections will be if the conservatives really don't get the majority inside the parliament. I think that that would be a really a real blow for the car, for the current government. I think yes, that would be a real. All right, issue. so there we go. So all eyes then to the 2024 elections. In the meantime, the role of the IAEA to keep things transparent, to keep us aware of what's happening, and of course, always keep an eye out for events. You can never adjudicate for, you know, the unplanned, the unpredictable events. Manuel, I want to thank you for this discussion. I think it's been really useful. I've learned a lot and I hope to have you on again soon. So that's the end of part one. With part two, we're going to come back and talk to Manuel about his career, how he got here and where he's going. Thank you very much. Thanks to you. All right, we're back with part two of the Arms Control Poster Podcast. Manuel Herrera from the Italian International Affairs Institute. So tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into arms control? What was, what was the hook for you in your career to get you interested in arms control? Was this a childhood interest or was this something that came to you later in life? Well, I don't know if it's a childhood interest, but I mean, one of my first memories about arms control and prefacial affairs was um, 
Uh, well, I mean, I mean, I'm quite uh, I'm a cinephile. I mean, I, like, I mean, I love cinema. I actually publish a journal on cinema <laughs> myself, a magazine. Yes. So, uh, and uh, when I was 12 years old, that's the memory I had. My, my father was quite a sadist person, so he considered that the best movie to show to a 12 years old child was basically Doctor Strange. <laughs> so. <laughs> So you can see my, myself in the main hall of my of my home, and my father talk, my father talking about this angle, this shot, the, the white, the black and white photography, etc., etc., etc. And the final thing that you see is the guy riding the bomb, and everything exploding. So I think that that was my first introduction to arms control matters no. or affairs, okay. I would say. But yeah, I mean that's a uh, that's something that actually. I still have that in my mind, let's say. But uh, no, I think that I really got an interest regarding uh, arms control affairs and non-proliferation issues when I was doing my master's degree. Um, uh, I did my master's degree in the uh, Barcelona Institute of International Studies, uh, eBay in for the acronym in Spanish. That's in and Barcelona. That, and I especially, yes, yeah, it's in Barcelona. Yes. Um, and well, actually, it's part of our network of members of the consortium. So uh, it's great to have them there because um, I did my master's degree in international international relations and international security studies, mm-hmm. and there was an optative lecture on uh, non-proliferation arms control and disarmament. That at the time was uh, now it's I think it's Jeffrey Michaels, but at the time was uh, the lecture was um, Margarita Pe- Margarita Petrova. Um, and, you know, I, I just got there for the sake of interest to say like, oh, wow, a course on non-proliferation issues, arms control issues. And she actually gave a very, through that lecture, she gave in five, six, seven sessions, I don't remember right now, a very comprehensive um, view of the whole non-proliferation regime and the whole issues and, let's say, hotspots in the arms control arena and affairs. So basically through... Um, theory in a, like traditional theory, strategic, strategic, traditional strategic studies like deterrence theory, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, legal aspects of the non-proliferation regime, and then a specific case studies such as, for instance, North Korea, India, Pakistan, uh, Iran, U.S. Russia strategic relations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that since that moment, I said like, oh wow, this is a field I I'm interesting about it. I mean, I just want to for the go on that and I decided actually to do my master my final master thesis on uh, the Iranian nuclear program yeah. and I, I mean I've been working on the Iranian nuclear program since 2015 basically uh, actually the year that the, the year that the GCPOA was adopted so it was quite a, a quite an important moment to do a master thesis on, the, on on Iran actually and yeah I think that this was basically how my interest let's say on the arms control arena and Af- I first started basically through my masters and Doctor Strange, of course. <laughs> but you had already done. Had you had you at that point had you already done your EU um, internship? The the internship with the EU? Non- no, no, no. I, I no. I did my internship because um, so after uh, I started to work after my master's thesis, I went to India for some times. Then I managed to get a position. In the Ministry of Defense in Spain. Hold on, and, hold on, hold on. Let's let's yes. dial back to India. Whoa, 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 whoa. What brought you to India? Uh, Delhi. I was in Delhi. I was in the Institute of Peace and Conflict Studies in New, oh, in wow. New Delhi, mm-hmm. the IPCS. I was working there with uh, a very good colleague of mine that I'm still I'm, I'm still in touch with her, and she's actually doing her PhD right now in Aberystwyth, 
in the in the UK. So uh, she's Shivani Singh. She's a very good colleague and friend, and I'm still. I was I used to work with with her when I was there under the supervision of Rujineo. She was well. She's still, I think, the director of the institute and basically the mo the expert in the institute on strategic and nuclear issues. At the time, it was quite interesting because when I get there, they were really uh, on on a hype on the GCPOA. They wanted to know everything about Iran. GCPOA and how that would benefit uh, India, because um, India was always uh, quite a big defender of the GCPOA because they wanted to import oil from the Iranians right. basically without sanctions yeah. <laughs> imposed. That was the main <laughs> that was the main concern. Uh, but actually, India for me was my first practical experience, think tank practical experience, because I, I, I got when I was in Barcelona, of course, I got contact with people in CDOP and I attended CDOP meetings and so on. But from a purely practical work experience uh india was my first uh experience in terms of think tank world and uh i really enjoyed i mean i really knew from that moment that okay the think tank world was going to be uh a potential possibility for me to work and i was right. sure about that and because not only i work on gcpoa but i mean i started to work on a lot i, mean, I started to learn a lot about um asia pacific political dynamics that i because i never done any course on asia pacific politics so for me it was super uh, exciting to actually try to see how the Indians see the triangular relation between China, Pakistan, and India, and also uh, the situation in North Korea. They were following quite a lot, so actually I learned a lot about the Indo-Pakistani conflict and the Indo-Pakistani nuclear and the nuclear dimension right. of the Indo-Pakistani conflict, but also about all the specific scenarios such as North Korea and the Chinese nuclear program and the rivalry <laughs> between China and India. Then, uh, of course, I came back to Spain. And that's where you got the job at the MOG? Uh, I don't know. Oh, I, yes, uh, it was quite, uh, I mean, it was, it was a position that I obtained because I was an eBay student and there was a particular type of agreement between eBay and the MOG. But actually, I never got, um, I never passed the exam, you know, to obtain their, I fully, a full-time or official position inside the ministry. So I was just through this agreement that we had between eBay and the MOG. And actually, after I don't know which, how was it? Eight, one, eight months, one year? I don't remember right now. I just said like, public administration is not my thing. I just I openly tell that to my superior. I said like, it was nice. I learned a lot, but the public administration is not my thing. <laughs> Many thanks for everything. <laughs> because I remember I, at the time was um, I was in the geopolitical cabinet of the ministry inside the direction for security policy. If I'm not wrong. Yes, I think that that was the name. And uh, was the time of the Trump Oof. and Kim summits uh, between yeah. Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. And uh, so I had to do the follow-up of all those summits. And basically, the, my job consisted in understanding what was going on in the summits and what kind of missile capabilities were the North Koreans developing at the time. Right. For the, at the time yeah. during the, during those summits. So. I mean, it was nice in terms of work and trying to learn more about missiles because actually my knowledge about missiles was quite mm -hmm. poor till then. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I just reached the, con the conclusion that I could not work in the in the ministry or in the public administration. For me, it was a good experience. And I said, like, I'm more of a researcher academic person and I want to go back to academia. Okay. And actually, following that, um, that's how I'm starting my PhD because I, when I was in Madrid, I had the opportunity to meet in person in several meetings, uh, well, several uh, events, sorry, who would be my PhD supervisor. 
um, who was uh, Vicente Garrido. He is also a member, his think tank is also a member of our network. Since I think he was one of the network members when the consortium was created. I mean, <laughs> I think so. Uh, but I had the opportunity to, to, meet, to meet him. He is like the main uh, he's like the main advisor to the Spanish Ministry of Foreign Affairs in non-proliferation disarmament issues. And he, for many years, I think like for almost 20, 25 years, he was considered like the main expert on non-proliferation affairs and matters in, in Spain. I think that to some extent he still keeps that that position at least uh, through the governmental circles, let's going to say that. And so one day, the way this was really... I mean, for me, it was like the best experience ever because one day I was uh, still working in the ministry, but I was looking already to apply for a PhD program. I just sent him a random email saying like, you know, I've been to this event. I've been been to this event that you organized. Um, I want to do a PhD on non-proliferation issues and arms control. And he just told me like, sure, come to my desk. Let's let's go start tomorrow. So that was quite a straightforward process. That's pretty and so from there, um, yeah, yeah. what you go on to there? Then it was Lisbon, then Frankfurt, and then Rome again. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Basically, basically, and actually, well, actually, when I started my PhD program with him, uh, I was still working on the PhD proposal. That's when I did the the internship program in Madrid with him, mm. basically. But yes, then Lisbon for some time, there in the Center of International Studies, and then of course um, Frankfurt as visiting researcher. I think that uh, my experience in Frankfurt was more in depth, like let's say, because actually Frankfurt brief. Uh, this is something I always speak with Nick. I always talk with Nick. It's like you guys have like the best library on non-proliferation issues and arms control I ever in, in the whole continental Europe. It's inc- it's incredible. I mean, if you ever manage to go to Cliff Library. In the top floor of the Basilea Strasse, it's like amazing. I can be there for hours. So, and yeah, basically that's it. And then, of course, I was finishing my period as visiting researcher in PRIF, and um, Federica del Arque left uh, IAI, and uh, I received this notification from the consortium Twitter. I think it was from Twitter, and just I saw the position, I applied for it. And actually, it was quite straightforward. Uh, just got my interview. I had a couple of meetings with uh, Ettore, who, Ettore Greco, who is now my boss, basically. And uh, yeah, I mean, in, I think in a matter of three wow. days, they just hired me like that. I mean, it was it was, it was quite a, it was quite a straightforward oh, process. Yeah. And of course, and of course, now here at IAI, I'm working. I mean, I work for many other projects, of course, but let's say like I'm the, like the main responsible of managing all our activities inside the and, non proliferation. So I have like one more question for you to close this out today, and that is: Is there any advice that you would give yourself earlier in your career? Is sure. there anything that you wish you had done, or anything that you wish you hadn't done <laughs> uh, earlier in your career? You know, anything you could go back to yourself maybe ten years ago and say, "Okay, here's some tips for your career going forward." Well, I don't know if 10 years ago, but I will go certainly 15 years ago when I was still in high school. Um, because I think that I always committed a mistake. I mean, I never, I, I mean, like, uh, I never thought about myself about studying political science. I mean, I actually never, I, I wasn't even interested in politics in my life. I don't think um, I ever had a pure passion or real interest in politics as such. Uh, actually, 
I wanted to, uh, when I was doing my, uh, when I was doing my high school, I was preparing myself to be a medical mm -hmm. doctor. Yeah, I was, I mean, I studied, I did all the scientific uh, high school degree. I did uh, mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and of course, I did, at the end, I didn't manage to get into the, um, the position. I didn't manage to get into medical school. That's, I mean, that's quite evident. So the thing I would tell myself at that time was like, forget about medical school and like, forget about studying medicine, forget about medical school. And just focus now in preparing yourself to actually apply for um, political science because actually it's a field that from the at the beginning I was I actually didn't have any any interest on it. I mean I just got into the bachelor degree because was that or start or work and work in in, in my family business and um, I'm quite a lazy person so I decided actually to study. So uh, but and uh, so the thing I would tell myself is like you know. This actually show off to, I, I mean, you have proved yourself that you have been able to develop a proper career path through your life, through through a profession that actually you were not thinking about it. So if I could go back, I would say like, now take this seriously, prepare yourself for studying political sciences. And even you could, you could even have a even better career path than the one that you have developed. That would be my advice to myself 15 years ago, basically. Well, that's fantastic. I think that's great advice. And uh, I think we'll leave it there. Okay, great. Manuel, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for sharing about the JCPOA. Thank you for sharing your personal background. And I, again, I hope to have you on the podcast in the future. I mean, I would be, I would be delighted to come back for sure. And many thanks for for you and the the IWS for giving me this. Uh, Great. So that wraps up the podcast for today. Once again, thank you to Manuel. Thank you to the EU Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium for funding the podcast. We'll see you again next time on the Arms Control Poser Podcast. Thank you very much. I repeat again. Repeat again. I repeat again. I repeat again. I repeat again. I repeat again.